Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. So this is just a little quote, and people no doubt have read this quote as well. We heard it here, loud and clear, and felt the ground shake. We've seen the radiation fall out over our community or over our camp. It was moving very quietly and very deadly. And that's the story that Dad often talks about because he was there at that time when that black mist rolled. They heard the ground shake, they heard that sound and it moved towards them. That's Karina Lester quoting her father, Yankanjara elder Yami Lester, at Black Mist, White Rain, an event that took place on Tuesday the 5th of April at Drill Hall in Melbourne CBD as part of a four-city speaking tour organised by ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. This episode of Women on the Line will bring you excerpts from the Melbourne evening of the speaking tour, which focused around the idea that, for many people in Australia and the Pacific, nuclear weapons are not a distant, abstract threat, but a lived reality, and that it is Indigenous communities who bear the brunt of this. Speakers at the Melbourne evening of the tour included Abaka and Jane Madison from the Marshall Islands, Sue Coleman Hazeldine, Okakatha Mula woman who lives in Sejuna, South Australia, and Karina Lester, a young Kunjara Anunku woman living in Adelaide. The evening opened with an acknowledgement of country by Gunayandi woman Viv Marlowe, and then each of the speakers shared their story. Women on the line would like to acknowledge that this episode was made on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty was never ceded. The first speaker of the evening was Abaka and Jane Madison, who is a former senator of the Republic of the Marshall Islands and works to raise awareness on the impact of nuclear testing in the Pacific, especially in support of the Marshall Islands lawsuit that seeks to challenge the nuclear powers for failure to comply with their obligation to disarm. Abaka was born on Rongelap Atoll, an island that was evacuated after the 1954 US nuclear test on nearby Bikini Atoll due to widespread contamination. I represent and I come from uh, a, a, a community at, at all called Rongolap. And um, these people were directly affected by the nuclear bombs uh, called Bravo Shot. The United States had their um, nuclear testing program from 1946 until 1958. Total of 67 atomic and hydrogen bomb. And the biggest bomb that was detonated was on March 1st, 1954, 1,000 times greater than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When the, the, the bomb was exploded, uh, um, the, the, the ground zero for the Bravo shot was on Bikini Atoll, which was 300 miles away. Before testing the bomb, the United States moved the people of Bikini. But for people of Rongolap, they did not. Because they already planned that they will use our people, my family, uh, as um, guinea pigs. They 
um, they did not come and collect the people. They knew that uh, the, the weather changed, but they allowed, they could not stop this bomb. It was so important. It would, it would be the bomb that would make the United States superpower nation in the world today. And, and they could not allow anything, anybody, to stop the test. So when the bomb exploded, early in the morning from the account of my uncle, who was the magistrate at the time, he said that he heard loud thundering noise early in the morning and later on he saw bright lights from the west and he thought maybe another war broke down or broke up and or somebody was also saying that maybe it was the end of the world but it was so scary that all the children were crying and cling on their parents. Later that afternoon, the powders started to fall from the sky, as most of my cousins were saying. They were playing and trying to catch all the white powder that was falling from the sky. They thought it was snow. Some thought it was soap, so they caught a lot and rub it on their hair and their skin, their faces, and, and they ate it too to see what it was. Nobody knew. They were not even warned that how and what to do and to protect them if they would experience this. Everything were secret. And so later in the evening, all the people on the island, 85 adults and children, and three women were pregnant, got sick. They all vomited, had severe diarrhea. Their skin burned, and headaches, and a lot of misery and discomfort. Children were crying, and the, the health assistant that was on the island didn't know what to do. He never, he never um, experienced this before. And given the fact that, you know, he didn't have any medicine supplies uh, on the island. It's so remote from the um, ur uh, urban city of Majuro. And so they could not do anything except trying to comfort each other as families. For three days, they were suffering. They were drinking water that turned orange, and uh, they got more sick. And finally, the US military ship came and collected them and delivered them to um, a military base on Kwajalein Atoll, which still exists today. Now it's called the Ronald Reagan missile, missile Test Site. And that's when the Project 4.1 started.
which means studying the um, radiation effects on human beings. And that's when all my families were considered as subject matter rather than human being. And uh, we learn all this through declassified information. Three months after, they were relocated to another island in Majuro, the capital city of Marshall Islands. And in 1957, they were returned home. They were told that their island was safe to live on. And they had built some new houses to entice um, the community to return. But it was all lie because it, from 1957 to 1985, people, especially the women, had a lot of uh, miscarriages and stillbirths and men started to develop cancerous illnesses. All these were not, did not happen to them before the bomb. Abaka continued that the Marshall Islands now have one of the highest cancer rates in the world and their government can't afford to provide medical care to everyone who needs it. In light of this, the government of the Marshall Islands has filed a case in the International Court of Justice arguing that the nine countries with nuclear weapons have violated their legal obligation to disarm and they are currently waiting on the outcome. Women on the Line on community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you excerpts from Black Mist, White Rain, a four-city speaking tour focusing on the effects of nuclear testing on Indigenous peoples. The next speaker was Sue Coleman Hazeldine. Sue is a Kokatha Moola woman who lives in Sejuna, South Australia. Sue is a nuclear test survivor and an outspoken advocate of Aboriginal culture and environmental protection. Sue was a child when the British carried out nuclear testing at Emu Field and then Maralinga in the 1950s and is now co-chair of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. Hello everybody, I'd like to acknowledge the land we, we're um, meeting on. Um, I'm going to be reading this like it's from a book but if I don't have it written down, you won't hear it because I'll forget it. My name is Sue Coleman Hazeldine. I am a Gugudamula elder. I was born on Kuniba Aboriginal Mission in 1951. The mission is about 40 kilometres west of Sejuna in South Australia. I now live just out of Sejuna with my husband. For those that don't know, we are on the edge of the Nullarbor, where the desert meets the sea. Our country takes in one of the last stunted Mallee regions that is still in pristine condition. We still carry on looking after our country, as our old people did, even though we don't live out there now. I remember the good life of hunting wild game and collecting bush fruits. Life was pretty healthy. We still do all this today. I teach the young ones coming up about the sand, the land and all the life it gives. I am a mother, grandmother and great-grandmother. My second great-grandson was born last week and I made him a little promise. And now I am out on this tour of four cities in four days, speaking about the past, present day problems and what we want for the future. I'm fighting for all my grannies and all the children of the world to keep the dream alive of a clean, safe future where there is no nuclear fear hanging over our heads. And like I tell the children, 
I'm fighting for the animals too. We are all connected. A world without animals wouldn't be a world at all. I was two years old when the first atomic bomb test began in the desert areas northwest of my Mali country in 1953. A full-scale atomic bomb went off on October 15 at Emu Fields. This first one was Totem 1, and it caused a death cloud known by many as the Black Mist. It killed people, blinded others, and made people very sick. Its effects are still being felt today. I wasn't on ground zero, but the Black Mist went all over. And who knows where the radiation went from, for the many tests that followed. I remember the older people talking about Nullarbor dust storms. It was the fallout from the Maralinga tests. The dust did not stay in one place. Our district is full of cancer now. My 86-year-old auntie told me that Minga, that cancer sickness, was never here before those bombs. Cancer is the big one, but it is also common for people to suffer from thyroid conditions or stomach and bowel problems. This is the case for myself and some of my grandchildren. Fertility problems still birth. Birth defects become more common at the time of the testing. Woomera Cemetery is full of babies who started dying around this time. We still wonder and worry that women have trouble because of the ongoing radiation in the area or genetic changes passed down through the generations. Like all people, the giving of life and raising children is an important to us and it's our human rights to be able to continue raising our family and sharing our culture forever. There are lots of Aboriginal groups in Australia. We are all different, but for all of us, our land is the basis of our culture. It's our church, our grocery shop, our schools, our chemist. But living a life and practicing culture out in the desert wasn't recognized as worthy by governments, but governments back then, or still today. In fact, we still have to work hard to have all the life, all the plants, all the animals, the underground water out in the desert recognized and protected. This is one reason why Emu Fields and then Maralinga were picked for testing. The English and Australian governments didn't think that land was valuable. They called it a wasteland. But Aboriginal people were still looking after and living their culture on the land that supported them. Aboriginal people were still present in the testing area when the bombs went off. The government was no good at ensuring everyone was safe. They had one patrol officer and some signs in English that people couldn't read. Australia was even more racist then. People have to remember this was before Aboriginal people had the right to vote. I believe the government really didn't care what happened to Aboriginal people on their land or their land. The bomb tests continued for many years, right until 1967. Big atomic tests that the British and Australian governments were proud of, and then a whole lot of secret tests that the British did with plutonium. These tests contaminated a huge area and everything in it, but people hundreds of kilometres away were also impacted. This includes my family and the broader community where I live. It is good more people are learning about the bombs in Australia, and I want more people to think about ongoing impacts, especially in my region because it doesn't matter if you're black, white or brindle. Everyone has a sad story about premature sickness and death in their families.
I grew up hearing about the bombs, but I didn't necessarily know about how the sickness went through the generations. When mining companies started eyeing off areas of my country, I started to look more into it, and I went to an Australian Nuclear Free Alliance meeting to learn more about fighting mining companies, but also radiation fallout. What I learnt devastated me. To find out that our bush foods were possibly contaminated was a real blow to me. It was at these meetings I also learned about other nuclear bombs, about other places where tests happened, and also more about Japan during the war. I also learnt that uranium mined in Australia was used in these weapons of destruction. To know that uranium from our country was devastating other countries and people broke my heart. I decided to fight any kind of mining then. There are too many illnesses and cancer deaths in our country. What's changed to cause this? I believe it's caused from radiation contamination, but I can't prove it. I think any kind of mining in our area would be digging up contaminated earth and sending it back to us on the north-northwest winds. The bomb tests destroyed a beautiful part of Australia, and despite several attempts, it will never be safe or clean. There are many Aboriginal people who cannot go back to their ancestral lands, and their children and their children's children, and so on, will never know the special religious places it contains. Having old displaced communities has also created confusion and conflict for other Aboriginal groups. These are ongoing issues which cause stress and heartbreak. We have been poisoned and we don't need the threat of being poisoned again by a nuclear waste dump. Whether it's Australia's waste or waste from around the world, we don't need the stress hanging over our heads. It's not, a, it's not our right to condemn our children to the risk of leakages or damage or terrorist attacks forever. This is condemning them to a life of fear. It's about time people see the desert and regions as places full of life instead of wastelands for dangerous activities. Aboriginal people have worked really hard <coughs> to have their culture and their land understood. We don't need governments telling us we don't understand or are too emotional about these things. We do understand the risks and we don't want them. But more than that, people all over the world don't want all these problems. The uranium should stay in the ground. We need to stop making waste. After Sue had finished, the third speaker for the evening was Karina Lester. Karina is a Yonkunjara Ananka woman and an outspoken advocate for nuclear abolition and is frequently called upon to deliver testimony of her experiences living with the consequences of nuclear testing. Her passion for maintaining Aboriginal languages is evident in her work with the University of Adelaide's mobile language team and as the Aboriginal co-manager and language worker. She also hosts a radio show on Radio Adelaide about South Australian Aboriginal languages. Karina has also been vocal about the issue of nuclear waste dumping in South Australia. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for the welcome. Um, before I continue on, I do have a PowerPoint presentation with some great images of my wonderful leaders in front um, who have taught me well. But before I continue on, I do want to acknowledge that I am on the traditional lands 
And um, I'm a visitor to this country because I come from South Australia in the far north on what's called the Yarnungo, Bidjandjara and Yangunjara lands. So I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners and to other Aboriginal people that are here in the room, but also all of you for coming and making this evening possible as well. So thank you all for coming and joining us speakers and hearing our story. And I guess that's what I am as a messenger. As I said, I'll talk about a couple of things, Dad's story, and some of you would have read Dad's story as well. So just touch, I guess, on being the youngest daughter of Yami um, and Lucy Lester, and talk a little bit about how that experience has been as well. And being a mother, of course, myself and, and my older sister now being a grandmother as well. So I'll talk about that. I want to talk about the Wandi campaign because that was so instrumental in my learning curve as well. Um, and just what's happening in South Australia and then talk about the next generation and what we're doing to move forward and I guess share our story and be that messenger to keep talking up um, Dad's story and how Arnaudruda, um, the Aboriginal people from Marilingujaroja and up on the APY lands, the Arnaudruda Yangunjara lands as well, how we have been victims of the nuclear testings that happened in the 50s. So this is the great photo that Jesse Boylan has taken um, of my wonderful father who has been such a role model in my life and there's three of us. So older sister Rosemary and we have an older brother Leroy as well. Growing up with dad I suppose it was a, um, you know, a different experience um, because he never did a lot um, as in, you know, nowadays I read stories to my children, I play football with them and there were times when we were growing up we didn't do that. But there was lots of other learning experiences. We often went home back to Mimili community in the Everard Ranges and that was a wonderful experience because we were able to still connect with our family, speak our wanga, speak our language, um, know who our family are and understand our animal kinship structure as well and that was so important. Dad became quite vocal after a radio interview that he heard on ABC. One of the ex-servicemen was talking and saying, yes, we did inform the natives out there that we are going to be doing these tests in the backyard. And Dad recalls that day and says, there was nobody that came out and spoke to Arnoldruda. One, because there was an English was their language and Arnaudruda spoke Bidjanjara or Yangunjara, so language barrier was a big problem. We didn't read or write and um, we didn't have the connect and the network there um, of hearing what was happening in the, in the tests that they were going to conduct down there at EMU and also at Maralinga. So Dad was impacted by those EMU tests on October 1953, when they released Totem 1. He was experienced, sorry, I've got my little, my little co-presenter coming in from the, my left here. <laughs> um, so he, he was impacted by those tests um, and radiation fallout as well. Um, and at that time, and he's residing there now up at Wallatina, he's 27 kilometres west from Marla in the far north um, state west from Malabar, there's a place called Wallatina, and Wallajara is the animal name for Wallatina. And that place is where the major community was at the time in 1953. 
And so Walidaru was a fairly large community where dad was there with his cousins, a lot of his family, his aunties, his mums, his uncles, his grandparents, his nanas, and you know, his old uncles and aunties, all the family. It was a fairly big community up there. And so it was a difficult time when the ground shook and that black mist rolled. <clears throat> One thing I remember um, Dad saying that when dust storm comes in, it comes in with noise. You hear it. You can actually hear the dust storm blowing in. And I don't want to know about dust storms. But this particular day, it was a silent black mist. And you can only imagine the fear that Anangu felt when they saw it, but they couldn't hear it, and they had no understanding or a, you know, knowledge of what was happening and what was taking place. And you hear stories. Dad shared stories with me when we were growing up that you know, family panicked. And because they were in the Dali country, in the Sandhill country, they started digging holes in the sand dune hiding to shelter and protect themselves. And so a lot of the older generation, Nanamob, had started to you know, dig holes in that dully to hide the children away as well. And still to this day, when we go home and visit Dad in the far north, we actually see the old community there. So you can see the old remnants of that major community, which is at the back of Dad's homestead area there in the far north of South Australia at Walladjara. And so you see that, and you can only imagine, if you go there and sit down quietly, how it would have been a happy community, but on that particular day, how things changed um, for the worse. And Dad's story is not a happy story. Um, he talks about how, over time, his sight went on him, and he became blind, and now he's fully blind. So he doesn't know us by vision. He knows us by voice. He knows his three children who are adults now by voice and also he's a grandfather of 12 and he only knows them by voice and by feel as they grow older and as we go up there and spend quality time with him and sit down with him. So that's his experience. He had vision and then he lost that and that's hard. Um, we grew up leading dad around. He never used a guide dog. Um, he always said, come on, daughter, hold on I'll, and walk me. So we often guided Dad through our childhood as we grew up. And, you know, he still does to this day. We always lead him around as well. Karina also spoke about the successful Erati Wanti campaign. In 1998, and no doubt a lot of you know about this one that happened when the Howard government announced and made an announcement their plan to build a national radioactive waste dump in South Australia. After shortlisting sites and eight sites across Australia, they identified Bilicolina, which happened to be in South Australia. That really started the Wandi campaign. And that was when Nanamob, my grandmothers and my great aunties were very vocal about it and said, we are. We are the law women. We know our stories. We're Nindi for Jogurba. We're Nindi for our Wabar. We have the knowledge of our stories in our land. We have the knowledge of this country. And we are saying, Erariwandi. And so it was that time back then when our campaign started. So these amazing women here, all my beautiful grandmothers and a beautiful auntie, two aunties, spent a lot of time sharing and talking and telling their stories, talking about their cultural responsibilities, 
sharing their cultural responsibilities. And one big message I took from the Eradiwandi campaign was that it wasn't just an Arnor issue. It wasn't our problem. It wasn't Arnor Jodawa problem. It was everybody's problem. And we took that on board and said, we need all the support. And there are people in this room here who rallied behind these amazing women. And it was a real team effort to get this campaign up and running. And they formed the Melbourne Gungajurda. And that was such a rock behind Nanamob to actually drive and be leaders in this whole campaign. Unfortunately, that's all we had time to include on today's show from the evening's event. However, for more information, listeners can visit www.icanw.org. That's icanw.org for the website of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Thanks also to Cold Hands Warm Heart, whose song Dandelion is the source of the music and ambient sounds in this episode and who also played at the Melbourne event. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelineline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.